Cast episode seven. Today we have Greg Stafford as our guest, someone that I've known for a long time, um, or at least ever since I started working at Kaiser. So that's going to be really exciting. We're going to be talking about blasting and all the medias and, and everything that goes along with that. Um, I got Chloe here with me today. She is back in Colorado. She's back working remotely again. She only is here for usually a couple weeks at a time. Um, so how's it feel good to be, I would say home is Colorado for her, but sometimes she calls Lincoln home. So how's it good? How's it feel to be back in the apartment? I guess. I mean, it's in some ways it's like back to that quarantine life, you know? Um, it's good though. I, I mean, I landed in a foot of snow and today it was 65 degrees. So that's nice. Yeah. She had to delay her flight going back. She stayed an actual couple of days, which I was happy for because it was really good to have her back in Lincoln. But, uh, that's cause you had like, snow, you know, was it, did yeah. they get like the three foot that they were saying or no? You know, I've heard such varying reports. Um, when I landed a couple of days after, the worst of it, it seemed like there were some pretty big drifts, uh, but it also, the roads were so clear um, that it's hard to imagine it was actually three feet. So um, everybody always exaggerates, right? It's like a fishing story. Like we got three feet of snow and it turns out it was actually like 16 inches or something. Okay. Um, But thankfully we didn't get, I mean, it came through to us, but it was more of a, of rain. Right. We had a lot of rain. It was it was quite a bit of rain, actually. I think around like two inches or more in Lincoln. So that was, I mean, that's a lot. But maybe now we won't hear so much about drought this year. Mm-hmm. We usually hear about drought a lot. but Yeah, I'm anticipating a very green spring, that's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it was great having Chloe back. We talked a little bit. We did a podcast while she was here, and um, we were in the same room. Got some things to work on if we're going to be in the same room with getting some soundproofing and and adjusting mics because that was very challenging to for echoing and for abby to edit so i'm kind of actually relieved that we're back in separate rooms for (laughs) for episode seven (laughs) but as far as like chloe being at kaiser i mean for for me and abby i think i can speak for her too like it's fun having chloe back we get to communicate with her on a daily basis through email and phone like she's hooked into our phone system so you just pick up the phone and you can talk to her but it's just nice having her around it's nice having her be able to see everything that goes on on a day-to-day basis and get the full picture. And and then she can just, uh, just the questions that she asks makes me look at things differently. So I like that because she's just not used to seeing it. You know, it's a new set of eyes looking at stuff. 
It's definitely been good. Yeah. I feel um, renewed energy for sure being back here. And she always gets and good. And a lot more. Yeah, go ahead. All right. But just a lot more in touch with what's going yeah. on. So She always gets great content when she's here too. Just pictures mm-hmm. that I wouldn't normally take because I just think like, man, that's boring. But she takes them and turns them into stuff looking good and video and stuff like that. So she's like, and it's so funny. So I'm trying to, there's a movie I feel like. Or maybe like maybe like SNL skits and stuff where like there's somebody that wants to like take a picture and you're always like freezing to like yeah. let somebody <laughs> take a picture. That's what I feel like I do whenever Chloe's around because I'll be like working on something, looking through something. She's like, oh wait, let me take a picture. Let me get a video. <laughs> but I mean, it's good. Like I I make jokes about it, but it makes really good content. It's like good stuff that no, no it would never happen, right? Because like I'm usually the one taking pictures, so. She's usually taking pictures of me doing stuff, so it has to be someone else. I almost right. want to like hire someone to follow me around like full time. Sometimes I do. You need, yeah, you need some paparazzi in your life. Yeah. What's Jace wearing today? Where's he going? <laughs> What's he doing? Well, I always wear Kaiser Blessing garb and jeans <laughs> and work boots. What did you fix this week? Uh, leaky fittings in the wash bay. I replace so. Basically, a lot of the chemicals that you're going to use in a wash bay um, or in like an automatic washer with for your pretreatment process, some of them are going to be pretty aggressive uh, just because they're used to etch and clean the metals. And so if you have metal fittings and metal tubing and piping uh, that are kind of carrying these chemicals to where they're supposed to go, that wears out pretty quickly. We try to use plastic as much as we can. So that way we don't have to worry about the chemicals eating away at all of our tubing and things. But sometimes you just, it's hard to avoid and you end up with a valve that's metal. We usually try to use stainless steel. But anyway, there was a stainless steel valve that's been on there for a really long time. And finally it just had enough wear on it. It was leaking. So I replaced that with a plastic one. Um, no, no big deal. Like it wasn't anything big. Um, so that was kind of bland for fixing stuff. But I have been working on... We spent a lot of time on safety when Chloe was back. Um, it Her set of eyes on that stuff really, really helps because I dismiss some of it or don't see it the way she does because I just see it every single day. So I was working on finishing that stuff up. Um, and then I'm getting I'm getting really excited about doing some more chemistry. And so, and what I mean by that is I'm getting some some chemicals and some, I don't know, yeah, I would call them chemicals to do like titrations and things like that. So we test our own concentrations. We have kits from our chemical supplier that we do that with, but I, you know, after we had Bill on, um, our podcast on episode six, he was talking a lot about, you know, make sure like water, it's very important and testing your water and knowing what all that is. And I know that we already have done that in the chemicals that we're using, work for it, but I just want to learn more about it so I can make more content for it and answer more people's questions. So I'm going to take our water and test some of the things that Bill was talking about with it. So I got some, some chemistry sets from, uh, Amazon, some beakers and flasks and, uh, a burette. And so I'm going to do some chemistry. It's taking me back to like chem 109 and chem 110 in college. When I was, was going to ask if you enjoyed that. Yeah, and at the time I didn't because it's very challenging, right? But now right. it's like I'm glad that I took it because I at least know enough about this stuff 
and I've done titrations before, didn't necessarily understand why I was doing them or why it was important or exactly what was happening. Like I did enough to do the assignment and the test, but that's something that as an engineer, you don't really use much further as a mechanical right. engineer. So I kind of lose a lot of that, but I know the verbiage. So I at least can go in and know, like I know what an indicator is. I remember what phenophalene is and things like that. So that I'm just getting excited about that. It's a little bit something different. Um, Bill will be so proud of you. He will be. And that's great. And that's another reason why I want to do it. So I can like just say that I did it and call him and ask him questions instead of like him doing it for like when we set it up originally, like he tested our water and things. And I sent our water off recently to get tested because we were looking at trying to just add another chemical to our arsenal. But uh, I don't know. I always just like to, to know it for myself and test it for myself, see if I can get the same result as somebody else. So we'll see. I, it'll take a while to like have enough time set aside to do that. But like I, like I always go all out, which everybody around me knows that like I, I'd like to everything to be perfect. And if I'm going to do something like I want it state of the art. So like I ordered all this stuff, like it was just stuff from Amazon. So it's not super expensive. So hopefully it's actually will work and doesn't break. But, um, then I was thinking about like, man, I don't where am I going to have space to do this? Like I need to, I need, like, maybe I need, like, maybe we need another building so I can set up my own lab <laughs> in it. That's just dedicated. Like it's a nice lab. I can wear lab coat in it. It's, that's getting a little over the top, but I've, that's what I've been thinking about or dreaming about. I was going to ask if you were going to go full lab coat. Obviously think, safety glasses. Yeah, safety glasses for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Like that just seemed like that would just be, I just that'd be cool, right? Have a nice lab. Mm -hmm. And then then it's like, well, if we have a lab to test pre-treatment pre chemicals, we might as well have a lab to test our powders. You know, and at that point, we may as well get like a small lab extruder so we can extrude some of our own powder. But yeah, that's just me thinking like crazy, right? Because that's, we don't have time to do that. Very expensive stuff, but... <laughs> That's what keeps I'll me give excited. Give it six months and it'll be happening. <laughs> I, I know how this works, Jace. You mentioned something and then a year later it's been done. Like, yeah. this we'll is see. how this works. I'm going to have, we got to get some, we need to get a, um, somebody in the powder cutting industry on the podcast that's like lab oriented, right? Yeah. Kind of like Bill is, Bill's not from the, doesn't work in chemistry labs or didn't, but knew enough about it, right? So we need either a sales rep that has been around the chemistry enough that can talk about um, powder chemistry. So if you're listening and you feel like that describes you or it describes someone you know, please reach out to us. We'd love to chat. So what is your social media tip of the day? Um, I would love people to know that Google Analytics offers a campaign URL builder tool, which allows you to create custom links um, so that you can track where people are clicking from. Um, and so JCU and I have been doing this on our social platforms just to kind of test like how many people are clicking from LinkedIn versus Facebook versus Twitter versus Instagram. And I think you and I both had some theories going into it of what we expected to see. Um, I assumed that LinkedIn, because it has a better organic reach and because you get so much more interaction there, uh, would do the best in terms of link clicks. But actually, Facebook is far and away our our most clicked platform, which has been really interesting. So if you run some social media uh, platforms and you're, you know, you have a sense that maybe they're generating some website traffic, but you're not really sure how much and you're not really sure which ones, um, 
Google the Google Analytics campaign URL builder tool. It couldn't be any simpler. And then when you log into your analytics, you'll have an actual report telling you exactly how many people clicked from each platform. That's a really good tip. And she's right. We have yep. been using it a lot lately, just trying to learn. Because you can do a lot of posting, but then it's like when you sit down and be like, is it is this worth all of our time type of thing? It's, right. Sometimes it's kind of hard to quantify. So yeah, it's a good, good thing that Chloe has started doing. So today's guest on KaiserCast episode seven is someone that's been our blasting sales rep for a very long time. Ever since I started working full-time, I've known him. His name's Greg Stafford, and he works for Canfield Joseph. He has a lot of experience and knowledge about blasting equipment and blasting media and probably some other things that he can share with us, but that's what I know him best for is anytime I have a question about blasting or we need to buy more blasting supplies, I call him and he has vast knowledge and a lot of experience mainly he's been around everything so he can point me in the right direction or steer me away from something so how are you doing today greg we really appreciate you taking some time out of your day and talking with us hey i'm, I'm doing great jc appreciate you guys having me and the opportunity to come on your show and uh i'm excited to get the chance to answer some questions for you and help you out however we can yeah, that's great. So I'm going to let Chloe take it away. She usually does most of the questioning, and I'll just kind of jump in as we go. So go ahead, Chloe. It's so nice to uh, finally meet you in person, Greg. I think we've traded some emails, um, but this is our first actual in-person conversation. I'd love to start by talking a little bit about your background and how you wound up in the finishing industry. Like I said, it's nice to meet you as well, Chloe, and I look forward to actually physically getting to meet you in person here uh, sometime in the near future. Um, but, you know, I got into the industry. I've been doing this. This is my eighth year uh, with Canfield and Joseph and, and in the industry in general. Um, I was actually I had a sales role. I was living in the uh, Memphis, Tennessee area and was looking for something or an opportunity that would get me back to the Midwest or Iowa where I grew up. And um a good friend of mine knew of a sales role or in a company that was looking for somebody in the Midwest. Um, didn't really know exactly where they wanted that person to land and, and, and territory to cover, but got me in contact with uh, a, a gentleman that's now the president of our company. And we had some conversations and uh, you know, six or eight weeks later, I was, I was back in Iowa and working for Canfield and Joseph and learning a whole new industry and, and customer base, but it's been uh, it's been a very interesting and exciting experience. That's great. And what does your current role entail right now? So I'm a, I'm a sales rep, um, and I would cover, say, the western half of Iowa, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. Um, and my role is really, a like I said, as a sales rep, but we're, we're a fairly technical sales support staff we're we're spending a tremendous amount of our time out in the field working hands-on with customers getting to know their application and their end use so that way we can help align the right products and equipment to support them and um you know really getting to know jace and his team over the years as, as well as other customers it it really helps make things easier when i get that phone call saying greg i've got this project coming in and I've got a couple of questions and, you know, the more knowledge I have about Jace's team and his operation kind of helps me be more of a support standpoint for them and, and help me play a bigger role in, in helping them to be successful. Right. 
So are you learning by doing when you're out in the field or is there some kind of educational process for technical sales support? Sure. That's, that's a good question. You know, I, when I first got started, I, I came out of the paper and pulp industry. Um, I did that for a few years after college. I, I didn't know a whole lot about sandblasting and, uh, you know, I, I took over a, a sort of developed territory from another rep. So I had an existing customer base, but they kind of, I got a lot of training from, uh, from Canfield and Joseph. I had a lot of, or had a lot of good support from the existing staff and other sales reps there that I can use as resources. But I, I really kind of got connected with some good customers that uh, would, would allow me to, to spend some time on site with them and, and really kind of get, get my hands dirty to kind of learn this industry as much as possible. Um, anybody that, you know, is going to be successful in this job has, has got to be somebody that's kind of spent some time underneath that blast hood and understands all the aspects of the process, not just, uh, not just the sales side of it. Right. Which I know is why Jace really appreciates working with you. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's something that, uh, Jace and his team, they've been great. And you know, it's the more that we can get engaged with the customer, the higher level we can support them at. Right. Right. So when we say abrasive media blasting to our customers, um, they immediately think of sandblasting, which is not a medium that we use. Um, why do you think that sandblasting is kind of like the default for people? Um, was it the original blast medium? Sure. And, and, and yes, it was the original blast media. Um, unfortunately, the terminology associated with, with it haven't really changed, although some of the practices and and products used have, have, have changed drastically, you know, back in the day, um, there wasn't quite the health concerns or the awareness of the health concerns associated with using silica sand as an abrasive. And as things have progressed and evolved, we've, we've kind of put more of a focus on some of those things and put more controls in place uh, to help protect the operator and then the people around in the, in the blast environment. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're trying to help educate customers, and you hear the term media blasting uh, used quite often, and that's that's a fairly broad term as well. Obviously, there's a lot of different abrasives, but it's some of those contacts and some of those people, uh, you know, when you say media blasting, they kind of look at you a little strange, and then when you say sandblasting, they say, oh, yeah, we do tons of that. It's like, oh. mm-hmm. So it's just kind of a, just kind of a culture change. Um, we're just trying to help. It would be nice to kind of help educate some customers to – to, to use a different term and, and certainly get rid of that sand as, as part of the title. Sure. So is sand uh, no longer supplied? Well, no, it's, it, it's really not. I mean, there's, there's outside regulations or agencies that sort of are trying to enforce and get rid of silica sand being used. Uh, obviously Canfield and Joseph, we, we sell zero silica sand for the use and abrasive blasting um, just because the health concerns and the, the issues with the free silica. Um, but, you know, OSHA has done a, done a great job of, of stepping in and, and, and putting in some guidelines in place to kind of help make that uh, or make, make it harder to use that as a, a media or abrasive. And um, a, lo- a lot of things have changed the industry as a result of them getting involved in putting different, checks and balances in place. I was going to ask who kind of regulates that. So, and it sounds like it's OSHA then. Yeah. Yeah. They do play a big part of that. Um, you know, they, they've created the, uh, the Pell or the permissible exposure limit and that, you know, that goes back to the early seventies. 
where they put in a guideline of how much exposure an operator or the personnel can have during a, a set amount period of time. And from 1971 now until most recently, I believe it was back in, in 2018, the guidelines have changed specific to the blasting or the general industry. And, and that Pell or permissible exposure limit has, has dropped considerably. So the amount of silica that a, a blaster or operator could be exposed to has, has been cut down. Interesting. So has PPE evolved quite a bit then um, in your time in the industry? Well, you know, I've, I've been doing this for about eight years. I think we've seen maybe the, the technology with the PPE is, has changed. It's, it's probably getting a little bit more operator friendly. It's getting lighter, maybe more ergonomically um, comfortable to wear, you know, with the, the addition of the climate tubes that can now heat and cool the supplied air coming into the helmet. But I think some of the education and the awareness of what is available from a PPE side is, is, is probably becoming a little bit more known and, the customers are aware of the the monitoring that they need to be doing for, you know, not only for the silica, but also for possibly like carbon monoxide and different things that could be in their supplied air. So it's, there's a lot of good tools and resources out there that, that can be used. And I mean, that's part of our job is to help educate the, the customers or the end users of what's available to them so that way they can be as safe as possible. I imagine the temperature control was a bit of a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, in, in the Midwest here, we could see, you know, very, very cold, cold temperatures in the summer, we could have the 100 degree days. So, you know, to be able to take that incoming air and, and, and cool it by 30, 40, 50 degrees can, mm -hmm. can certainly help that operator. It creates a, a lot more user friendly environment for them. And, and the, the, the more comfortable we can keep that operator, hopefully the safer they can operate and the, the more efficient they can, can be as well. Yeah, and the PPE is extremely important. And when I first started, I didn't realize, like, I knew that you got to have a blast helmet on mainly to keep the blast media away from your face and things. But then, you know, when I talked to Greg and started learning about that, you know, obviously we're supplying air to the helmet. Then we have to consider, well, like, where is that air coming from? Well, it's coming from our air compressor. So we got to make sure that that air is actually good enough to breathe. We need to put it through the right filters and have the right monitoring equipment. And there's a lot of different companies out there that, that have uh, monitoring equipment and filters. So you can kind of have your choice to pick whatever you want, but learning about all the different ones that are out there and certain ones do certain things differently and trying to understand that to make sure that you're actually giving good quality air to the operator themselves is really important. And I think sometimes that's probably like the, the last thing that gets remembered. Maybe not when you're, like us, we have a very specific facility. We have a blast room. We're like hooking up to the same stuff every day. But Greg, when when there's people blasting out on site and things like that, how does the since I don't we don't really have experience with that, I would assume it's more challenging to get everything hooked up the right way every day or when you're moving from job to job. Is Oh, I'd agree a hundred percent with you, Jason. You know, it's when you're on the job site, everything's got to be mobile. It's taken apart and put together all the time. And each job site specific that the layout is, is totally different or can vary from one day to the next. You know, one day the compressor might be right next to where you're going to be blasting and everything's kind of condensed together. And sometimes a compressor might be 
three or 400 feet away and you have to run a, a great deal of air supply line before you get to the, you know, the blast pot or the, the, the filters that are going to be supplying both, both blast air and respirable air for the operator. So it's, it, it is very important. Like you said, the, when you're in your shop and you're blasting in the same environment all the time, it, it does make it a little bit easier, but, but it is easy to kind of take it for granted and not think about it. A lot of times that compressor, even in a blast shop is not right next to the blast room. So it's always important to go all the way back to that compressor and do a good inspection and a, and a check on everything from that compressor all the way to the end, just to make sure that we're, we're giving ourselves the the freshest and the, the the best quality of air to the operator, and that way we're not introducing any contaminants or or anything that could be harmful to them. Yeah, and then one thing that I learned from you that I like, we would have air coming into like the CPF filter, and that might be a certain brand, and then we had an air hose coming out of that, that could be another brand, and then the the cool air tube or the heat air tube was another brand and the blast helmet was another brand. And I thought, you know, Hey, these all, all these things were good individually. We like certain ones over others for each part, but then you'd help me realize that that's really not the way you're supposed to do it. It's supposed to be all the same brand. That's correct. Yeah, that, that is correct. Yep. There's, there's other agencies like NIOSH that get involved in that. And the main thing is, is just the, to make sure that every one of those components that you just described um, connect properly and, and, and work to create the results you're trying to achieve. They, the phrase that we always say is, is nose to hose all the way from the operator's blast helmet all the way to where it connects to the inline filter, that CPF filter you mentioned. You need to maintain one brand. Um, and that, like I said, is just to make sure that everything goes together properly and achieves the results we're looking for and that way they all they're all compatible together that's so interesting um you know yeah that's so interesting this is a complete aside but i just spent two weeks at kaiser like on site because i normally work remotely and we got a lot of calls asking whether we had a mobile blasting unit and it wasn't until i was there that I realized how much of a demand there is for that. Do you see a lot of that in your territory or is it primarily stationary shops like ours? No, yeah, we, we, we see it all. I mean, we're helping Canfield and Joseph. We support customers in small fabrication shops, you know, guys that might just have a small little hand cabinet um, and they're just doing small touch-up work to the other end of the spectrum on our surface preparation side of our business could be guys doing bridges and water towers and, and large above ground storage tanks. So we, we work with small customers, then we work with some of the biggest contractors in the country. And uh, to get back to your point about the, the mobile units, it's it, it has really, really grown in popularity over the last several years. Um, a lot a lot of guys, there's 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 some companies out there that are introducing some some new styles or different types of equipment that are more geared towards a almost like a franchise you could you could buy this trailer and it's got really all the components you would need to to run a, or to be able to operate a blast business from and um that's it's really by those guys getting involved in the business it's, it's created a lot of awareness towards blasting and uh and, and the mobile side of it is, is is certainly where that attention is drawn towards 
must be useful for infrastructure. I mean, you mentioned bridges and water towers and that kind of thing. Yeah, it really is. And a lot of these mobile rigs, I mean, they can, you know, say there's graffiti on the side of a building or something like that. They could, they can really just bring all the equipment right down to it and off of a city street or in a driveway and, and, and take care of a project for a customer. So it really can create a pretty versatile system. Wow. So uh, my understanding of the blasting process is fairly rudimentary. Uh, Jace does a great job of educating, but I've never actually, you know, done it myself. And I think until you're in the booth, you don't really understand what it is or how it works. So um, this is a basic, basic question. Um, Do I understand correctly that abrasive media blasting can be performed wet or dry? And what are the differences and advantages of each? Yes. So you you certainly can blast wet or dry. Um, You know, dry is the the process when people think of sandblasting, that's that's probably the most commonly thought of process, though people have been wet blasting for for a very long time. Um, you know, in the past, guys were blasting wet by using uh, like a water ring or a wet injection nozzle that would introduce water to the air and abrasive stream at the nozzle. And it sort of helps encapsulate that blast environment where the the, the blast media comes in contact with the substrate of the surface and sort of it works as a containment to help keep that dust down. But over the past few years, there's been a lot of different equipment manufacturers have introduced some new equipment and some different technology to the market that um, has really been very popular, making kind of the wet blasting side really grow in popularity. Um, and, and that's mainly due to some of those mobile rigs I was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But like the benefits of one over another, um, uh, you know, in terms of production rates and things like that, they're both very similar. I mean, I know there's a lot of companies out there that will preach that that wet blasting is more efficient and you're you can blast faster. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're still using compressed air and an abrasive. Um, you're really doing pretty much the same thing minus the water. Now, the water will add some some weight and some density to that that abrasive uh, media. And I guess I guess it could help cut it a little bit faster because it's going to be hitting a little bit harder since it's heavier, but it, it's it's hmm. not going to be a dramatic difference in productivity. Does it have Does it have any impact on whether you're able to reuse it? It can. Um, you know, most guys that are using wet systems are using a more friable or a one pass abrasive that. Um, once it hits the surface, it pretty much breaks or fractures to the point where it's not reclaimed. Um, but that's that's a great question because in order to reclaim that material, you'd have to put it, you'd have to collect it, you'd have to screen it, so that way you could remove all of the surface debris or contamination from the ground um, off of that media, and then it would have to be dried to be able to be, put it back into a blast vessel or a blast pot. So. It would be very difficult to do that. Although I've I've heard of some people doing it, I just think that it would be very cumbersome or laborsome in order to do that. And would probably take up some space, I imagine. You know, with our climate here in the Midwest, for four or five months out of the year, where we're at or below freezing, um, right. you know, a wet a wet only system uh, is very difficult to run when it's zero degrees outside. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned the word friability. We just spent a week on social media talking about that word. It's one of Jace's favorites. Um, can you define it a little bit and then explain what it means in the context of blasting? Sure. So 
I mean, to me, friability is how brittle a media is or, or how, how it's tended or what its tendency is to break down upon impact. So uh, an abrasive that is more friable will break down or fracture as it, as it's used. The ones that are less friable, we, we can actually reclaim those and reuse them multiple times. And uh, one other benefit or one other factor in there is a more friable abrasive will generate more dust in the blast process itself because it's that media itself is going to burst or fracture. So you're going to have dust from the surface of the substrate that the abrasive as it cleans is removing material from the surface, creating dust. And then that, that abrasive itself as it fractures will create more dust as well. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm happy to report that it's in line with everything that we were sharing with our followers. So that's always good too. <laughs> um, so Kaiser uses crushed glass, aluminum oxide and steel grit. Um, and I know that there's, you know, hundreds of blast media options out there. Are there any, in your opinion, that are overlooked or underused um, or could be better utilized? Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good question. You know, there, there are countless uh, abrasive options out there on the market. It seems like we're, we're learning about new ones or different ones all the time. Um, and you also learn about customers that are taking maybe multiple abrasives and blending them together in a pot to get sort of the features and benefits of, of each one to create a, a finish or a profile that they're looking for. Um, to pick one that I would say is, is, is overlooked or underused, um, you know, I, I've been playing around a lot lately with uh, plastic media uh, and it is just, cool. it's, it's different types of plastics. There's different hardnesses, but it's basically like a recycled byproduct and it's chopped plastic. It's, I always tell customers that it looks like fruity pebbles. It's multiple colors of little pieces of plastic that have been cut and uh, you hold it in your hand. It's really light. Um, you wouldn't think that it would have much power behind it, but it is a tremendous product for stripping off powder coat. So interesting. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a neat tool that I think a lot of customers probably haven't used it before or haven't had the chance to experience it. And, uh, I've learned a lot using it, a lot, a lot testing it lately. And, uh, it, it doesn't uh, leave a, a profile or an anchor on the surface, but it, it it certainly will cut very quickly. That's interesting because we, from time to time, we have to blast off our own powder if something goes wrong or if we have, even if it's old railing that's um, faded and rusty in spots, but it was powder coated originally, it usually takes way longer to blast. So just kind of relating that to our system, would that be something that's that plastic is reclaimable or we would kind of use that as we do crushed glass and kind of put it in its own pot. And once you use it once it's done. No, it, it is certainly abrasive Jace that you'd want to get multiple passes out of it. Um, you know, you're, a lot of time with plastic, you're blasting in that maybe 40 to 60 PSI range. I mean, depending on the application, you might see some variability from there, but it's something that, um, you know, you, you could get, we, we like to say probably eight to 10 passes out of, um, okay. and at the, at the cost, it would it'd be something you'd certainly want to get those eight to 10 passes to really realize the benefit of. So is that like an angular 
media where it's you know actually removing material away i mean i would assume there's got to be part of that if it works good for taking off powder but is it or is it a mixture where there's some more rounded like peening that happens too sure no no that would certainly be the the reason it cuts so fast is it is, is an, an angular abrasive um it, it is fairly sharp um we we see it a lot in aerospace applications where customers are needing to strip off a heavy coating, but they're not able to change the dimensional tolerances of the substrate below. So they might be doing an aluminum or magnesium part and we're blasting it to remove that coating, but we can't remove any of the metal that's underneath. So to, I guess to answer your question, the shape of it is angular, but it's not going to put a profile into the metal or substrate. So a lot of times guys, if they're going to quickly remove a powder coat off of a surface using plastic, um, you might see that person use a different abrasive after that to create that anchor profile on, on the metal to give themselves a good adhesion point. Okay. So basically, and this is the first I've learned of the plastic, so this is breaking news to me on Kazercast, but is it <laughs> essentially it's uh, so your plastic would be less more friable than the substrate because it's not actually putting a profile on the steel substrate let's say for example but it's similar friability um or a little less friable than like the coating that you're trying to take off so essentially it's going to remove the coating not hurt the substrate underneath so for like direct application to kaser besides powder you know that we use a lot of crushed glass greg when we are blasting cars and things like that um so would that be a good another option that we could try is plastic instead of crushed glass? Well, it, it certainly could. And, and I guess let me step back a little bit too, is, is a lot of times when guys are using plastic and they want to achieve an anchor profile, sometimes they'll blend in another abrasive. They might use some fine aluminum oxide to go with it. Okay. So you, you kind of get the cutting benefits of the, of the plastic and then you get sort of the anchor profile and the additional benefit of the aluminum oxide. But, you know, on, on the car bodies and things like that, I do see a lot of uh, restoration shops using plastic. Um, and a lot of times that's on maybe high-end fiberglass bodies and things like that. I, the nice thing about the crushed glass that you guys use is, you know, if and I think you guys use crushed glass a lot of times if there's concern of carry out. Correct. Yep. So if you're if you're using an abrasive that costs, you know, so many cents per pound to blast something where, you know, plastic might be probably just say round numbers, ten times the cost. Oh, okay. It's it, it can be kind of cost prohibitive, especially since I know that that's the crushed glass reason why you guys are using that. Right. Okay. Well that's still I I, I knew that there was Plastic abrasive, I guess. I just didn't realize that though it was kind of having a surgence where a lot more people are using it. So that's very interesting. Yeah, we just did some testing for a customer on some different substrates and, and, and produced some 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 results. I'd, I'd be glad to share with you. And you know, obviously, in your guys's cabinet, that would that would support or work with a plastic. So if you ever wanted to try it, um, it's it, it's certainly a unique or interesting abrasive. Yeah, and then you mentioning cabinets. What I know that you deal with a lot of different sizes of customers, but and we have a blast room and a cabinet, so we can service um, both ends of the spectrum. But where do you? I would assume you deal with a lot of uh, customers that 
they're either they're maybe they're growing and so they slowly get bigger and bigger cabinets when do you feel like that it's a good time to go from a cabinet to a blast room or what do you see as the advantages like when i look at it i just see like well we usually can get a lot better production in a blast room because we're gonna get you know more air got a bigger area but is there any other thing that you if you're like talking to a customer or helping somebody set up a new facility what are you kind of looking at to decide which direction to to point somebody sure and a lot of times when we're trying to help direct somebody it's based on what parts they're doing the sizing and then the quantity as well um you know if you're going to be doing car axles and large parts like that or big panels typically they'll only fit in a booth and so that kind of drives us towards that that avenue um, and a lot of times on the cabinet side is we can show customers you know they're doing small handheld parts they go in and out of the cabinet very easily that cabinet doesn't take up as much space as a booth um, but they they can also change out of braces fairly easy with those cabinets and go from one to another um, giving it a lot of flexibility um, when it comes to blast cabinets you've really got two suck two two styles you've got the siphon or suction style cabinet and on the other side you've got the direct pressure um, which is which is similar to like a, a, a normal blast pot it, it doesn't utilize a siphon tube but a direct pressure cabinet would be about three times as efficient or three times as productive as a siphon cabinet but a siphon cabinet in terms of like your entry costs would be a lot lower um so when I work with customers, I really like to kind of help them understand the, the, the benefits of each. And, and sometimes it's nice just to have a small handheld part instead of going out and firing up a, a 50 or 75 horsepower compressor to, to feed your blast pot to blast off a three square foot part. It makes more sense just to drop it into a blast cabinet and do it quickly in there. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. And I think that's why we ended up having having both of them. You know, a lot of times, depending on their booth or their what space they're they're blasting in, they might not have the ability to reclaim or recover media. So sometimes, just having that cabinet gives them the ability to use an abrasive they can't use in a blast booth because it's just cost prohibitive. Yeah, it makes sense. So to go back to the media conversation, um, with so many options on the market, how do people know that they're choosing the right medium for the job? Well, you know, the right media for the job is you, you really need to take a step back and look at what the substrate or what the part is, and then also what you're trying to accomplish by blasting. Um, you know, like I was saying with that plastic abrasive, it doesn't really create an anchor profile onto the substrate. So if we're trying to remove a, a thick heavy coating and we're trying to create a say a one and a half or a two mil anchor profile into the metal when we're done blasting so it can be recoated again um, knowing those factors and variables are going to kind of help lead us to what uh, what type or even what size of abrasive we'd want to use um, and then also we need to kind of consider what the environment is we're going to be blasting or do we have the ability to, to reclaim or recover the abrasive so we can use it again or is it going to be sort of a, a one pass or fall to the ground abrasive that um, is from a cost standpoint is going to kind of drive us to look at uh, a different group of, of options. Okay. And so that's where the friability comes in, right? The, the one pass versus being able to be reclaimed. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. Exactly. Um, 
you know, and another factor to think about too is, is what type of equipment uh, the, the operator or customer has. And, and from there, sometimes there's some abrasives that really work well with the equipment they have. And then sometimes their, their equipment might not be set up to run another abrasive at a efficient enough level. So do you feel like a matchmaker for your customers, like asking them questions about what they're looking for and then finding the right thing for them? No, you know, sometimes it, it, it's fun and that's what makes this job interesting is just the diversity of it. Um, you know, every day there's a new application, there's a customer trying to do something a little bit differently. And I've been doing this, like I said, for eight years, but I come into stuff all the time that I, I haven't been part of or not aware of yet. And I've got to rely on some of the other guys I work with that have been doing this for 25, 30 years and kind of get their experience. Because if if I haven't done something like that, odds are they have. And uh sure. You know, it's sometimes I think customers feel like we're asking them a bunch of questions, but we just want to make sure that we understand the whole scope or the whole project. So we we give them the best option maybe for them. Because I imagine if they don't select the proper media, there's I mean, there's danger involved, right? You could damage the part. I mean, what else could happen? Well, exactly. You know, you could use an abrasive that might uh, penetrate or, or leave some contaminants in the surface that could cause some some issues down the road. We could use an abrasive that's not sized properly and we might create uh, too much of a mill profile or not enough of a mill profile to meet the spec or the requirements of the coating, which could lead to some issues down the road. Have you have you seen any major catastrophes in the blast booth? I mean, what's the worst damage you've seen done, or what are some common mistakes that you see customers making? Um, you know, that's a good question. You know, it's probably the most dangerous thing or the the most common issues is is is, is probably just customer creating an environment that might not be safe for the operator. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's putting them in a situation that they might not be aware that they're, they're doing something dangerous or unsafe. And, and so that's a lot of times where, like I said, we're, we're on the road, we're, we're hands-on with our customers. We spend a tremendous amount of time in the field, helping to help them to understand the options available to them. But it's also to kind of help coach and guide them to be aware of different things too. But, um, in terms of if I've seen things that are you know dangerous or unsafe, I mean I, I have seen customers utilizing say like a ferrous material like a like a steel grit, and they're blasting. You know most of the most of the parts they blast are carbon steel, and and somebody needs to do some touch up work on something stainless, and and, and that's obviously if Jace would know that's a not something you want to do is introduce carbon steel or or, or anything ferrous into a non ferrous part. Um, right. You could embed something into the surface and, and cause a defect or it could rust or it's 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 really just making sure you're aware of what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, and then aligning the best product for it. Have you ever gotten a phone call from a customer saying that they don't know why, but they keep blasting holes through parts? I would say blasting holes through parts, but I've had the call saying, Greg, you know, I, I, I tend to warp the surface or, um, uh, you know, I, my, my media is too aggressive. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing just to change the, 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 uh, media that you're using, but we can also look at different styles and nozzles. We can look at, 
adjusting your blast pressure to accommodate the substrate and the media that you're using. Um, it's, it's helping coach and customers on maintaining the proper blast angle and, and dwell time or, or how long the nozzle is staying in a, a specific targeted area. So a lot of times, to get back to your question, Jace, it's, it's not that they're blowing holes in something. It's maybe that they're just doing something incorrectly that we could help, help adjust and change. It's the, the damage might not be a hole, but it might be a warp or it might be um, too aggressive in a certain area. Right. We talked a lot about today the, the that we have a lot of different options for uh, different abrasives like aluminum oxide, crushed glass, steel grit, plastic. We haven't talked a lot about that. Like in, in steel grit, we have a lot of different options for like sizing. We talked a little about, about angular versus being round. So like more material removal and producing a profile versus um, peening with something that's round. But can you talk a little bit about when well, we're just talking about different sizes of, of media when we're getting into like mesh and things like that? I, I know a little bit about it and me and you talk about it when we're trying to maybe improve our removal rates and things, but we want to stay within the same type of media. But I don't, I don't know all the different options. And I guess how do you, how do you as a sales rep and Canfield Joseph as a company have all that stuff? on hand or have because it seems like there's a wide range that are like almost endless possibilities from all kinds of different suppliers so how do you guys kind of pick out where you like to be so you're you have everything available that you need yeah i mean that's that's a great question it's it's certainly something that we're we're thinking about all the time Um, i mean you come into one of our warehouses and it is you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions of pounds of, of abrasive that we stock. And um, in, in each different type of abrasive, we've got us- usually two, three, four size options for the customer. Um, and, you know, those size options are going to help drive what sort of anchor profile that we're going to we're going to create in that substrate most of the time. Um, it's it's really just understanding on what your requirements are, what you need for a, a, a profile, um, and kind of the rule of thumb we like to think of is you want to utilize the smallest abrasive you can to do the job, because um, the, the smaller the abrasive is, you're going to get more impacts per square inch. You're going to get more individual pieces of media hitting that sub substrate or surface, and so that's going to give you a uh, the best cutting speed. And it's also going to give you the nicest surface finish when we're done. Um, you know, a lot of the times if we got to go to a, a, a bigger abrasive, you're, you're going to get less points of contact when it blasts. And so your speed might be a little bit slower, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's a really good example. I've never really thought about it like that. But instead of throwing like one huge boulder at the park, Chloe, we're throwing a ton, a ton of tiny little pebbles or going back to, I guess, sand. We don't use sand, but, but you know, that's why sand was used in the past because it's so fine, right? Yep, that, that's exactly right. And so if you think about your blast booth, Jason, where you guys are using uh, LG80, it's a steel grit. Um, you know, 80 grit is, is the sizing on that, but obviously you've got some checks and balances in your reclaim system that helps determine the size of the abrasive that stays within your system. So as that media is being reclaimed to your bucket elevator, to your air wash separator, 
that draw from the dust collectors pulling off the fines, the trash, and then the abrasive as it breaks down, it's pulling off those small pieces, the fines we call it, and then they go off to your dust collector to go to a, to, to a disposal. Um, but by adjusting those dampers and, and regulating that air wash separator, we're maintaining a certain sizing that's, that's in that system. And then you're, you're obviously adding material to replenish what's coming out. So within that work mix, we call it, or the, the material that you're actually blasting with, you've got some material that's, that's fairly new and it would be the largest size. Then you'd have some that's made, you know, 30, 40, 50 passes through that re reclaim system. And so it's, it's broke down and it's a little bit smaller, but that distribution of sizing really, really is important because you need the big particles to hit hard and, and do the cleaning, but you need those small particles to come back and kind of give you your surface finish. And then, like I said, they're also giving you that speed. Okay. Um, when we're, I lost my train of thought there. Was we were talking about steel grit and we're reclaiming. I don't know, Chloe, you can go on. I had something. I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, I know this is kind of taking it in a different direction. So Jace, if you want to bring it back, um, please feel free to do so. But I know you've been, Jace, you've been really pushing respirator safety in the weekly safety meetings at Kaiser. Um, you know, storage of respirators, making sure the guys are wearing them properly, et cetera. Um, Greg, you know, for the sake of the Kaiser team and anyone else who does media blasting, can you talk a little bit about how to stay safe in the blasting booth? Sure. I mean, obviously, it's that's, that's a very broad question. Um, you know, there's a lot when it comes to the respirators and the equipment and things like that. But, you know, the main thing is, is, is just try to always make sure that your blasters are prepared and that they're doing their, their the proper inspections on their, their blast equipment and then the respirators and their PPE as well. You know, those daily and weekly audits are crucial to make sure that everything is in proper working condition. You know, I've listened to some of your other podcasts, Jace, where you guys are going around fixing things and maintaining things. It's it's crucial to make sure that everything is operating as it should and that, you know, it, you get the tendency to be rushed and, and just make something or fix something to the point where it's going to work again so just you can get the job done. But, you know, cutting corners on anything like that, it's, it, it's just not safe. Um, you know, and, and in a blast booth, I mean, there's several hazards. There's you know, the main one, like we talked about earlier for respirators, that air quality coming in, making sure it's, you know, it's clean. It's there's the carbon monoxide levels are at appropriate. So that way the operator is safe. And then, and then also when you look at like the blast equipment, it's the, the you know, the safety switch or the dead man is working properly. So if the operator was to trip or fall, um, you know, the, the flow of abrasive is going to be shut off immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, it also gets back to the PPE, the operator, not just the respirator, but the, the suit, the gloves, you know, wearing the proper, proper, uh, a good pair of boots. It's just, it's all around protection, um, you know, and letting somebody else know that you're going into blast. So somebody else knows that you're in there and is checking on you, you know, having somebody that's a pot tender for you, making sure everything on the outside of the booth is, is working properly and looking good. Um, it's just, maintaining a good level of communication it's it's so mm -hmm. easy to go into a blast booth and put that helmet on and if you got a big project in front of you you, know, you could be blasting for i don't know an hour or two especially if you got that recovery system that's going to keep up with you um, you know you let go of the dead man and that that pot self fills itself as you're moving the hose or 
um, kind of resetting parts in the blast area. And then you, you keep working. You're, you're spending a ton amount of time in there. And uh, it's, it's nice to have somebody else looking out for you and, and making sure you're being safe as well. Yeah, I, re- Sounds- I remember... Sorry, oh, before, I, before I forget. No, please, <laughs> um, yes. First time that this happened, but this is good. I, this will be good for the podcast. When you were talking about um, referencing our steel grit, Greg, and we were talking about how we reuse it and reclaim it, I always say that we get 2,000 impacts out of it. Is that right, or am I over-exaggerating? Oh, I, that might be a little bit of an overstep, Jace. I mean, 2,000 would be would be tremendous. I mean, obviously, the amount of cycles you're going to get are dependent upon your application and what the substrate is and, and how hard you're blasting. The rule of thumb that I was always taught and the way I was trained, the, the material that you're using, the, the LG80, at 110 PSI blast pressure, you'll get roughly 300 passes out of. Okay, I've been a little to over exaggerate a little way too much there so but we can we will we'll use some sound bites from greg on our social media and we'll set me straight because i usually whenever i'm explained to anybody walk through the shop i say 2000 impacts i know i've said that to chloe a lot of times i don't know yep. how many times i've said it on some of our videos but i know i have but so greg setting the record straight 2000 is a little too much Every, whenever i say 2000 everybody's draw like drops and i'm like yeah 2000 but 300. It just sounds That's so good, use. Jace. It sounds so good. Yeah. Okay, I'll use yeah, 300. It's a, it's a big number. It's a good number. Like I said, there's going to be some variance depending on your application. You know, 300 might be twice as many as you're getting because your your you know your airflow and your air wash separator and things like that are set up that you want to maintain a larger size material, or you might be have less draw on that, so you're you're maintaining a smaller work mix in your system, so it's staying in there longer, so you are getting more passes. There's there's lots of variables, but in the the laboratory or the 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 conditions that we set up to come up with that number, I, I've always been told it's closer to 300. Okay, well that's good information, and kind of tying back to uh, Chloe's question about the safety and and all the stuff that Greg was mentioning. And saying that sometimes you just get in a hurry and, and you got to remember to take time to be safe. And that's definitely true when we're in the middle of big production or just even everyday production. Um, we have the same uh, blast operator, Stan, has been with us for many, many years. And so that's what he does all day, every day. He's really used to doing it. It's easy to kind of just get, I don't want to say complacent, but it's just, it's everything so much of a habit when you've done it for so long um, and things don't go wrong then you just kind of feel like that nothing's going to go wrong or that that it's not going to be that big a deal uh, you can't get hurt that bad but you're still using really powerful equipment and stuff can still go wrong and the thing that that i worry about the most is just we're supplying air into that um helmet and and it, so it's an air supplied respirator and you just don't really know I mean, you have a monitor on there that's monitoring carbon monoxide and some other things, um, which is really important. But like as the blaster inside, you just don't really know exactly what's getting fed to your helmet. That's why when Greg said having somebody outside or at least someone that's walking for us, we we have a shop. It's inside a building. People are walking through all day. So there's always people with their eyes on the outside of the booth, which is really helpful. But there are some um, monitoring equipment that will give off sirens that we have and it also puts off a strobe light in the blast room to kind of help the operator know that um, maybe something's not quite right and he can know to stop because when you're in there for anybody that hasn't been around blasting before 
in our room or if you're outside somewhere blasting it's loud it's hard to see um you're carrying around this really big heavy hose that's at a, around 100 psi usually with abrasive coming out and so really the last thing you're thinking about is all of the safety stuff that you need to be doing you're just trying to hold on to this hose and not get thrown around by it and make sure that you're actually being productive and getting getting um your parts blasted so the safety is really important it's i like having um greg and some of the other suppliers that come by with them from time to time to just look at what we have because they always will bring up like oh that looks like that you know that might be worn out or don't forget about this or um, somebody came out with a new something for PPE and it just gets you, even if we don't want something new or aren't thinking about it, it gets you thinking about like, okay, if someone came out with a new such and like helmet, is ours still okay? Maybe, you know, make sure that we're inspecting it like we're supposed to be and things like that. So that's, that's where I think, I don't know if, I think Greg probably makes it a point. You can speak to that, Greg, but it, it seems like when you, come around to our shop at least you're usually kind of looking for anything that's sticking out um to you and then you usually try to bring it to my attention yeah no i agree completely with you and like like you said it's always nice to have an extra set of eyes other you know a, a different supplier or somebody with you because we're sometimes you do get not complacent but you get used to seeing the same things so um you know it's it's so nice to have a fresh set of eyes somebody that's not in there on a daily basis to, to take a look at things because Sometimes it might stick out to somebody differently just because they haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, and when so since Chloe works remotely, um, it's been really beneficial when she comes back. She usually comes back for a couple of weeks at a time, and the most recent time she was here, we walked through and just kind of did um, our own audit on our own safety. Just went down a checklist uh, from the OSHA website, like a self check, and um, since she doesn't get to see that stuff every day, she has you know maybe entry level questions, but it makes me think about stuff differently because I don't look at it from a very basic level. So like Chloe, when you were walking through, was there anything that there was a lot of stuff that you saw that kind of that I, I see, but I see it every day. So I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, in my mind, like, Oh, that's not that big a deal. But when Chloe brings it up and asks a few questions about it, then it's, it makes me think about it more. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's benefits to me being a novice, right? On one level, you're explaining things to me constantly. On another level, it's forcing you to reevaluate everything constantly. Right. So that's been been really helpful. Was there anything, like when you look at blasting, since you've never actually been in there and, and done it, are there any questions that you still have about it? Or or is there anything, when you look at it, you're like, wow, that's scary? Or why, you know, is there, I hope they're right. being safe with such and such? or. Um, I mean, today cleared up a lot of questions. Uh, so thank you for that, Greg. Um, mainly my, I mean, I've been researching blast media for social media posts for several weeks now, and I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by how much of it there is and how to go about picking and all of that. The thing that really struck me this last time we were walking around the, the booth though, Jace, was just the amount of noise, <laughs> um, you know, and we were talking about how ear protection was required and some of the guys were hanging out nearby without necessarily realizing, you know, how loud it was because they're so used to it. And for me, it was overwhelmingly loud. Um, I would probably point to that as the one thing that stood out. Yeah, I agree with that. Greg, when you're, well, I guess what, 
and we can we can cut this portion out if we need to but what's the most common ppe issue that you see that it's like really easy to fix but people just kind of forget about it Sure, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's a it's a PPE, but a lot of times people forget to utilize safety cables when we're we're going from you know we're transitioning from one valve to another on a blast pot, or when we're we're connecting different hose assemblies. Maybe you're running seventy five feet of blast hose, and we got to add a twenty five foot section there to give us extra length for a specific project. And we use safety cables to connect each side of the hoses together. That way, if we were to have uh, you know, a failure or a coupling come apart. Um, it, it's going to help hold those together to to, to pre- prevent anything from flying around um, under these extreme conditions. We got a, a tremendous volume of air at a very high pressure. So, I think safety cables are are something they're 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 very inexpensive. Um, but I think it's something that a lot of people just either don't take the time to to put them back on or even the time to use them. But it's uh, it's certainly something that could be could really, really help somebody out. That's a good point. Most of our connections are, since we're stationary, are like threaded connections uh, with pipe fittings. In those situations, are do you think that we should be using safety cables? I mean, they can probably always help, um, but is there, a for like a rule or regulation, is it mostly when you're coupling together, or if you have a threaded connection, are you supposed to be using it as well? You know, Jason, honestly, I'd have to check with that. And a lot of times when you do see like a threaded uh, connection, sometimes it's even, it's it's multiple stages of it. We're going from, say, an inch and a half or a two-inch supply line coming in, and then we've got to convert that down to fit into our inch and a half or inch, or sorry, yeah, inch and a half or inch and a quarter abrasive metering valve that we're, a lot of times we're stepping things up and down. So you might have three, three couplings or three, components coming together you wouldn't be able to 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 put safety cables on all of them Uh, i would say that safety cables are more commonly used on quick connection fittings where you've got like the two lugs or the ears that that hold together Um, you know you've got the pin that goes in to hold them together but those safety cables need to be there as well um, coming back to the threaded side, jace i I don't know the exact requirements or if there's anything that you're 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 I guess regulated to have. I'd have to look into that. I would assume there might be something, but to, I wouldn't know for sure. Okay, and Chloe, what he's talking about, you haven't probably seen him a lot around our facility, but when he's saying quick connect, there there are fittings that go on the end of the hose that they're rather large, and then they just kind of like it's like a half turn, quarter turn where they just snap together. And there's kind of a gasket there, so that's what holds media and air from coming out. But out in the field, where when we were talking earlier about where you're blasting out on site and all of a sudden you need way more reach, they just quick connect another 50-foot hose on. But then if you put the safety cables on there, that way if for some reason it gets bumped or the, the safety clip that was in there comes out or just like the hose comes away from the quick connect for some reason, then the safety cables are still holding the hose in. So it's disconnected, but they're not flailing around and smacking somebody. It's still at least it's kind of holding them together. And then, and so that's kind of helping when it initially blows, it doesn't hurt anybody, but then obviously the blaster is going to know something happened because he's going to lose pressure at the nozzle. So he's going to stop, but it really helps it from flailing around. Like a fail safe. Yeah. 
So is there anything you have any other questions for Greg? Yeah, he's given me a lot to digest. Um, yeah, I would love to uh, let this percolate and then have him come back at some point um, down the road. Okay. Well, Greg, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it went, we're, we're almost up to an hour, but that was a lot of really good stuff. I even learned a few things today. The Plastic Blast Media, I'll probably get with you in the next couple of weeks, and we can talk about that a little bit. Whenever I hear that blasting off powder coating quicker, that my ears always perk up, and I'm glad that you were able to talk about friability because that's one of my favorite things to talk about. But is there anything that you we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about, Greg? No, oh, I mean I think this is a, a pretty good uh, range of, of topics and, and comments. Obviously, we could go off on a tangent and go down an avenue on, on something specific and spend an incredible amount of time. But I just want to thank you guys for the chance to come on here and and, and always thank you for the opportunity to help you guys out and. Um, if there's ever anything else I can do in the future or follow up on something specifically, just let me know. Okay. We will do. Thank you, Greg. So nice to meet you. You as well, Chloe. Thank you. So that was Greg Stafford. Uh, he's our blasting sales rep. He works for Canfield Joseph. Like we said, we've known him for a long time. He's really experienced, uh, travels around all, all over the Midwest and um, is always helpful and it's really good extra set of eyes. Sometimes you have sales reps that come in that that don't have um, a ton of experience and they're more office-based, but Greg definitely has a lot of experience and he's always out in the field, so that's very helpful. So thanks, Greg, for all the time that he spent with us today. Hopefully we can have him on again in the future. So we had a really interesting question on LinkedIn um, just today or yesterday, I think. Uh, it came from Chiara Fapa Pedretti. Um, and just by stalking her a little bit on LinkedIn, it looks like she is a translator who specializes in a lot of technical work. Um, and she was asking, uh, she wanted to know the English term for a defect uh, that occurs during the curing phase. And I'm not sure I totally understood um, what she was describing, but it sounded like the hot ventilated air was causing the powder to deposit where it wasn't supposed to. Is that right? Yeah. So she, the quote that she put on social media or on LinkedIn and then tagged a bunch of us in it, um, cause she was looking for the answer was something to the fact of like during the curing phase, like in the ovens that we have, they're convection. So there's, it's hot, but the air is being circulated and she's saying the powder grains, um, get then deposited on the substrate and they kind of scatter inside the oven. So she's mainly Italian. So I think how she was kind of saying it, she translated it to English and it kind of got a little bit like our, our, our way of speech is backwards to every other language i swear right, of course. <laughs> but so like it's actually the that english is backwards just so everybody knows compared to everything else but what i gathered from it and the way i answered it to her is i didn't exactly follow what she was saying but i think what she's describing is is if so when you roll parts into an oven or if they're on an automatic line and they go into your oven obviously it's powder still right when it goes into the oven and there's air movement so some of the powder is going to get blown off and kind of get airborne, like little tiny, tiny, tiny dust particles um, before, like, because right when you go in the oven, it's not just like instantly like flows out, boom, gels, 
like it's still powder for a while for a little bit, a few minutes. So that can, some of those grains can get airborne and they can just kind of be floating around, moving around the oven because they're very small and tiny. Some get stuck to the walls. Um, if you walk in an oven, you'll see over time that, you know, slowly but surely there's buildup on the walls with a ton of different colors. But those can stay in the air. You can move a cart of parts out. Say those were white. Bring a cart of red parts in. And while those red parts are still kind of in a powder form, heating up, some of the white powder particles that are in the air of the oven can come down and land on the red parts. And then when it cures out, you have little white specks in the red. And so I would just call that, and what she was looking for was like, what's that called or what's that process called? And I would just call that color contamination um, or oven contamination or cross-contamination. But it's definitely something that could happen. Um, so it, it's not even necessarily that you're carrying two carts with two different colors. It's that one cart was in first, the powder circulated, and then you bring the next cart that's a different color in, and that same powder can contaminate. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. I mean, it can wow. happen both ways. So like what you are saying, having white and red, red in the oven at the same time, much more likely for this process sure. to happen if they're in there at the same time, most definitely. But if you ran white all day long or probably more like if you ran red all day long you probably would have some sort of contamination in your oven it is natural that some is going to get blown off and then you put a car of white in where white's really susceptible to any other type of color a little bit of red might drop on it now it's not probably going to be like speckled everywhere but you probably will be able to find a few specks that are red how do you prevent that what do you so do so there are some things that you can hang in the oven on carts or and I don't know this for sure so hopefully some people will get in the comments or somehow reach out to us on social but you can I, I think this is more of an issue for automated lines because stuff is happening at a pretty constant speed and when a color change happens it's just one right after the another there's never time for stuff to settle in those ovens where ours there's maybe in a batch setup there's maybe some time for settling and some time in between but to try to prevent that when you're on an automated line, you can actually put up, hang up like steel parts, but I think that they're actually like kind of a tack board type of thing that mm. it's some material kind of like our masking, you know, it's a high temp polyester probably. Um, but the sticky side is out. So when that rolls through the oven, you know, then anything that's loose, it like any dust, Anyway, even if it doesn't have, even if it's not powder and doesn't have pigments, they'll say leaves are blowing around in there. They'll stick to that thing that you're th pushing through the oven or, or automatically going through the oven, kind of clean the air of the oven, if you will. Right. I mean, in, in essence, like, I don't, I don't want to say filtering, but kind of like just cleaning up, getting anything that's in the air out. So you could keep like going. fly tape. Yeah, sure. Fly tape. Yeah. Wow. High temp fly tape, maybe. And I, I did so we not could know do, that this was a thing. Yeah, so we could do something like that if we were having a really bad problem with it and hang it on our carts when we go in, right, and just let that sit in there for a while. But, or realistically, you could just shut everything down and let it all kind of settle, you know. It's not it's not so bad that, like, you open it up and you see, like, all this color flying around. But, it, like, sure. some of it's happening. It has to. So... Like, when the oven cools down, um, I assume that all of that material probably sinks to the floor. Yeah, and it ends up, and mm. there's a lot of a lot of it gets stuck on other stuff. 
Like I said, sure. if you run your hands down the inside of an oven when it's cool, so it's cool to the touch, like you can feel all the different mm. powder. You look at it and you can, it's like uh, paint overspray. You know, it's just okay. overspray, it's just specks everywhere. And it's, it, it gets all over in the oven. But when you're like, when you're talking about a powder coating oven, there's a lot of, it's a really big burner. It's a lot of heat. It's a really big fan because you got to circulate that air to kind of keep everything. So there's a lot of air movement. Like you got to be on, in some ovens, you have to be careful that like you don't blow the powder off of parts. So that's another problem. Wow. Like that could be what is actually causing some of this to go airborne and off the part because there's so much air movement in there that it's like literally like, you know, for, for an example, taking an air blower and just like blowing the part off in the oven and letting all the powder go into the air. I mean, that would be a, an extreme example of it. So does the oven need to be swept or vacuumed or maintenance that way regularly? Swept is helpful. Yeah. You're usually not getting like a ton of, you don't end up with a pile of white powder. Okay. But, but there's this all kinds of stuff that ends up falling on the floor. And for us, we're opening and closing the doors of the oven. It's ground level. Mm -hmm. So leaves and stuff get in there if they're in the shop. When you're on an automated line, you're, that's usually hanging up in the air. If it's dropping down, they kind of have, it's dropping almost out of the oven into some trays or something. Where ours is just dropping to the floor, then that can just keep getting kicked up by air movement. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Kiara, for tagging us in this. This was not a process that I even knew could happen, so I learned a lot. Um and uh, hopefully, you know, that was helpful and um, will serve you well as you translate. Yeah, that's why LinkedIn is so awesome because she's like, she's from Italy, I think, originally. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she still lives there, but somehow she just like started like following some of our content a long time ago and we connected and I think I reached out to her and just asked her some questions like, hey, if we ever needed some content written in Italian, could you do it? She's like, yeah, Absolutely. So she's wow. in like very technical writing, um, but translates it both ways, you know, translate pretty much, I think anything into Italian or vice versa, which wow. I, I didn't really think of that as that there's people out there that do that, but obviously that, that that's really important, technical writing right. translation. So that way, you know, when somebody makes a discovery more like probably like lab based and paper based, you know, article based. And she's able to translate that into multiple. I think she does more than just like Italian. I think she can do a lot of different ones. That's, That's so it's really awesome. helpful. That's oh. great. Well, I think that wraps up episode seven. It was a good one. We mostly talked about blasting all day until that question. So that was good. Change it over to, to powder coating at the end. But hopefully that helped to educate people on blasting. Hopefully that they, um, if they have any questions, they'll reach out to us. But Greg, I think, answered a lot of our questions. He'd be a good one to have on again in the future. I'd love to have him talk about um, boundaries and stuff. We don't do anything with that, but that's like that. That's really interesting to just learn about. I think for people because mm-hmm. when boundaries would be like pouring hot molten steel, right? So that's that's very like um, key part to any type of industrialization that we do. Absolutely. And he's always around the manufacturing process. We haven't, yeah, we haven't really talked to anyone about that. Yeah. And so that would be, 
there'd be a lot of like today we didn't get much into like mill scale and stuff, but like that is that's where mill scale happens, right? At the fact, like when stuff is getting made and it's hot and it's cooling down, like that's where the scale comes from. So that could be something really interesting to talk about. And he might even have more um, insight into different types of mill scale. You know, what's harder to remove, what's not as hard, what what types of mill scale may stay on for a long time you don't have to worry about, what types of media should you be using for different types of mill scale on different metals. Like that's all kind of from the foundry side of things. That's the really, if, if you've ever seen like how it's made and things like that where people are in like full, looks like, moon suits and like hot molten steels pouring out of this huge vat of something and they're sitting there like banging some with a hammer like that's kind of the at least that's the vision i get it might not greg could clear it up for us at some point i think that'd be just very that's interesting awesome. for people to look. it'd be interesting for me we could learn a lot so yeah we'll have to have him back all right are well, we having dustin on next yeah if we can get it all to work out we could have him on next and then we have some we have some topics coming up on masking. So I'm going to reach out to a couple of our masking suppliers, masking and plugs and caps, see if they'd be interested in talking. Because that's a whole world that we do a little bit of, but but there's a lot more that goes into caps and masking that we even realize. So that would be good to have someone on for that. So I'm going to look into that. Hopefully we can get someone interested. But yeah, we do need to get someone from Kaiser on, and Dustin would be very good. He's a good storyteller and very 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 funny has a lot of good one-liners so we have that to look forward to all right we'll talk to you later chloe thanks everybody for listening hey is everything working good for you you need anything anything broke anything leaking just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. We stay late tonight, we need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated. If we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything?